All righty, well, let's open in a word of prayer. We'll get started. Father, we're grateful for your word, thankful for how it um, deals with the fundamental issues in our lives, including the most fundamental issue, how to have a relationship with you and get to heaven. So I do pray that you'll be with us today as we study, uh, both in the main service and in this particular class and in all the classes that are meeting here at Sugarland Bible Church. We do pray that you would have your way. We pray for the illuminating ministry of the Spirit of God. And in preparation for that, we're just going to take a few moments of silence to do personal business with you by way of confession, if need be, not to restore position but broken fellowship. We remain, Lord, thankful, particularly this time of the year, set aside uh, coming up a special holiday to give thanks. We remain thankful for your comprehensive provision for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. If you could open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Um, which says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And so what we're, what we've been doing is we have been going verse by verse through Second Thessalonians, spending an abnormal amount of time on verse 3 because it's very controversial. Paul, as you know, had been, after planning the church in Thessalonica, had been kicked out of Thessalonica, and he moved down south there to Corinth. And it's from Corinth that he discovers a problem. The problem is given in chapters chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Looking at just verse 2, he says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now in the first letter, when you just look at the order, he had taught them about the rapture. First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. And then when you switch to chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he taught them about the day of the Lord. When he taught them about the rapture, he said, We who are alive and remain. When he talked about the day of the Lord, he said, They will not escape. So he's given a very clear chronology that first comes the rapture, then comes the day of the Lord, which would be the events of the great tribulation period, leading to the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth. 
So you can imagine how uh, shaken, there's the word there, shaken, the Thessalonians were to receive a letter allegedly coming from Paul indicating that, no, what I taught you earlier is wrong. You're actually in the day of the Lord now. So he had taught them you are here in the church age and we would be raptured before the tribulation. And then they get this false correspondent saying, no, you're actually here. You're in the day of the Lord itself. Which means he was contradicting, if this letter was true, he was contradicting what he said in the first letter. So what he does is he says, no, what you've received is a forgery. Stick to the original game plan that I gave you. And by the way, you're not in the day of the Lord or the tribulation because if you were in the day of the Lord, you'd see five things which are not happening. Nobody can say they're in the tribulation period till they see these five things, none of which you've seen. And he gives a list of five, and the first thing he mentions is the apostasy. And I think... Um, I'll try to convince you of this, that this word apostasy is better translated the departure. That's how all the other earliest English translations handled it prior to the Reims Bible leading to the King James Bible. We talked about that last time. So what, what it really is, is he's saying the departure hasn't happened. So then the question becomes the departure from what? And here's the debate. Is it a departure from the world, i.e. the rapture, second view there? Or is it a departure from the word, meaning uh, a doctrinal departure of some kind, the first view there on the screen? Um, early on in this kind of series within Second Thessalonians, I kind of talked you through why I don't think the first view... Uh, makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of problems associated with this being the apostasy of the church, the apostasy of the world, or the apostasy of Israel. What I think it's speaking of is Paul is using the word departure as a synonym for the rapture. And he's just making a very simple point. He's saying, you're not in the day of the Lord because the departure, the rapture, which I already told you about in the first letter, and I, I even gave you a chronology for it in the first letter, the rapture hasn't happened yet. And if that interpretation is right, it becomes very significant because Paul says the departure comes first. First, the departure. The apostasia comes first, First is a translation of that Greek word proton, which means first. And if that interpretation is right, then all of this debate about the timing of the rapture, when it's going to happen, relative to the impending seven-year tribulation period, the debate is over. We won't be raptured in the middle of the tribulation. We won't be raptured at the end of the tribulation. We won't be raptured three-quarters into the tribulation. But we will be raptured or we will depart first. 
Um, I do have a little booklet on this. I think there's, is there some available, Pastor Jim, in the back? You guys are welcome to that. One per domicile, if we can handle that. Which is kind of a summary of the teaching that I've been doing the last few weeks on this subject. Where I'm trying to give you ten reasons why I think the physical departure view is the one that makes the most sense. And we've actually covered nine of the ten. The first reason is there's always been doctrinal departures in Christianity. So how could that be some kind of defining sign of the end times? Number two, Second Thessalonians was a very early letter where Paul early in his ministry, is talking about the return of Jesus. He's not talking about the last day's apostasy of the church, a subject he does take up over a decade later, decades later actually, towards the end of his ministry. And a lot of people, when they talk about this, they don't really put Paul's letters in order. So they force Paul to talk about something he's not talking about early in his ministry something he talks a lot about late in his ministry. Number three, it doesn't just say departure in Greek. There's a definite article in front of the word departure. And it says the departure comes first. And the definite article is repeated in the verse concerning the Antichrist, the son of destruction. So just as the Antichrist comes upon the scene, not gradually, but instantaneously, that's how the departure is going to happen. That doesn't fit a doctrinal departure, which is those are typically gradual. They don't occur suddenly. But it does fit really well with the rapture because Paul, writing to the Corinthians, would tell us that the rapture will take place in a moment at the twinkling of an eye. I've tried to show you that this noun, apostasia, and the verb form flowing from the same root can both refer to a physical departure. So, so since the word can mean both, doctrinal or physical, you know, doctrinal or spatial, the way you handle these kinds of issues is you look at the context, right? The context overwhelmingly favors a physical departure view. The extended context does, because the two Thessalonian letters were written back to back. And when you go to 1 Thessalonians, Paul ends every chapter with a reference to the return of Jesus. And then when you look at the immediate context, chapter 2, you'll see it demands a rapture interpretation, because that's what Paul's dealing with in this chapter. He mentions the rapture in verse 1, our gathering together with him. He mentions the rapture, verses 6 and 7, the restrainer being taken away. And we've worked our way through all of that, trying to understand it. And then number 8, the rapture is, um, or this, when Paul gets around to teaching this, it's a review. If you look at chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? So that's why he doesn't come out and use a word, harpazo, rapture, like we would like him to use. 
Because when you review for a test, you don't use the same vocabulary. Paul had several words he used for the rapture, and apostasia becomes one of those words. And then number nine, and this is what we covered last week, if you look at all of the early English translations of the Bible, until you get to the Roman Catholic Reims Bible, and the King James Bible reacting against the Reims Bible, You'll see prior to the Reims Bible and prior to the King James Bible, the way they, what they put in the passage as an English translation is the word departure. So I would just, if you're like into taking notes and things like that, I mean, I would just prefer you to take that word apostasy or rebellion, which shows up in English translations, and just cross it out. And instead, write in the word, departing away. Because that's literally what he's saying here. The departing away comes first. But yet most people have never heard this view, because most of our English translations are following the King James. The King James is reacting to the Reims. The Reims had an agenda. The agenda was to take this word and apply it to the Protestants. Those apostate of Protestant, Protestants. So the Reims Bible, um, and let's see, I'm not getting that back screen back there, so maybe you guys, as long as you guys can see, that's, that's, that's what's important. I can see right here, so no problem. But the, um, Reims Bible, was reacting to the Protestants, calling them apostates. <clears throat> so when people today think this means something spiritual, what they're really doing without even recognizing it is they're following a Roman Catholic translation. Uh, they're following a Roman Catholic agenda. Because it's not until you get to the Reims Bible that this was translated with words like revolt, rebellion, Every single prior English translation translated this as departing or departing away. And so I, when I go through these points, I have ten of them, I don't think a single one of them seals the deal, but ten of them taken cumulatively demonstrates that I think we're dealing with a physical departure understanding. So my tenth of ten points is this. This physical departure view is held by credible scholars. And I want to give you this information to show you that the path that I'm walking in here is not the majority view. Most people haven't ever heard this view. But it is a very strong minority view held by many, many reputable people. Um, one of the things that's happened is I think I was one of the first to talk about this after YouTube <laughs> came into existence. And all of these other older guys were talking about it before YouTube came into existence. And so so people have thought that I've just made this up. Uh, they, they Today, when you want to answer a theology question, nobody reads anymore, right? <laughs> they, they Google whatever into their... They consult Rabbi Google, as I call it. Uh, they, they type it into the YouTube search engine, and my stuff comes up, and people said, oh, 
Pastor Woods is talking about this being a physical departure view. That's a weird view. No one ever talked about that. Well, maybe I'm one of the first to talk about it on YouTube. But I'm not one of the first to talk about it ever. Okay? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm showing you this to show you that this is not weird. This is not crazy. There are a lot of reputable people far better at this than myself that have taught this. And I started to compile a list. And actually, this list is now bigger than the list I gave you last week because I discovered two more people. So, and the ones I have asterisks by are ones I'm going to give you quotes from. So on the left side of the column is Kenneth Wiest, Greek professor, Moody Bible Institute, E. Schuyler English, who wrote a book called Rethinking the Rapture, my professor, J. Dwight Pentecost, the first I heard this from, H. Wayne Howe, Stanley Ellison, J.S. Maybe, Alan McRae, Gordon Lewis, Henry Morris, the progenitor of the Young Earth Creationist Movement. He has something called the Defender's Bible. I'll show you his notes in a second. John Rice, Dave Olander at Tyndale Theological Seminary, J. Carl Laney, Grant Jeffries, um, who passed away a few years ago, who was a prophecy teacher. Somebody sent me a YouTube video where Grant Jeffries is answering Bible questions, and lo and behold, he takes the physical departure view of Second Thessalonians 2. Paul Lee Tan, I'll talk about him in a minute. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, I have a long quote from him to share with you today. Tim LaHaye, Thomas Ice. Don Stewart of Calvary Chapel, Bob Thiem, Baraka Church, Gordon Olson, who just prior to his death developed a new English translation of the Greek New Testament. J. Vernon McGee, you all know that name. Uh, Jimmy DeYoung, Pastor J.D. Farag, Pastor Dr. David Hawking, um, Jimmy Swaggart, I'm not... Thumbs up to everything Jimmy Swaggart's ever done or said, but he is a big voice in AOG, <coughs> Assemblies of God. And I'll show you his Bible study notes where he takes the physical departure view. And then Chuck Smith, who is the father of the entire Calvary Chapel movement, which is a movement really beginning in the 60s and 70s that went all over the world. There's Calvary Chapel churches globally. And it's sort of funny, some of the biggest antagonists um, towards this physical departure view are not all, but there's a minority of guys that come from the Calvary Chapel movement. They're saying, this view is crazy. No one ever taught this before. And I'm like, have you checked the record book? I mean, your spiritual father taught you know, this view. Uh, Chuck Smith, I'll show you his notes. So um, the ones that I have asterisks by are just quotes that I'm going to share with you from people. And I do this because um, whether the view harmonizes with the majority, the minority, really doesn't matter. Um, what matters is, is it in the Bible? It doesn't matter who believed it. But it is interesting. It gives you more confidence about a view when you see more and more people that you respect that were advocates of it. 
So the first quote I'll give you is H. Wayne House. And um, he wrote an article in a book called When the Trumpet Sounds. I've given you this quote from him before. But he says the noun form allows for apostasia, departure, as a simple departure in the classical Greek period, proved by examples from Liddell and Scott, which covers classical Greek before the Koine period. The entries there for Liddell and Scott have physical departure entries, and they have spiritual departure entries. So Liddell and Scott is acknowledging that the word can go both directions, depending on its context. If one says that this is not important because the meaning is only classical or ancient and and thus lost its meaning by the time of the New Testament, so you have to sort of understand Greek. Uh, You have the classical period prior to the New Testament era. Then you have Koine Greek in the New Testament era. And then you have what's called patristic Greek after the New Testament era. And what Wayne House is saying is if you consult dictionaries from the classical and the patristic period, before the Koine period and after the Koine period, you'll discover physical departure entries in those dictionaries. So he says, if one says that this is not important because the meaning is only classical or ancient and then lost its meaning by the time of the New Testament, I may turn to the same root meaning of apostasia in the patristic era immediately following the New Testament period as indicated in the definitions for the noun in Lamp's patristic lexicon. Although the noun used in the sense of spatial departure is not the normal meaning or the primary meaning during New Testament times, the word is found with this meaning in time periods before the New Testament era, And we could add after the New Testament era to this quote, because that's his point. And he says, and it's likely to have been understood this way at least sometimes. So what people say is, give me an example of the word, the exact word in the Koine period. As if we've discovered everything from the Koine period. Uh, It's like people that make that kind of complaint. It's like put your, your, your right foot in the Atlantic Ocean. And then now, now tell me everything about the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, there are there are so much things from the Koine period and all of these periods that haven't even been unearthed yet. So people, when they make this argument, act like we've got some kind of complete, you know, finite, closed box uh, set of information which we don't have. But Wayne House is saying, look, if it was used in the classical period and the patristic period, do you think the word lost its meaning during the Koine period? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, I've never seen a word that has a meaning, loses its meaning, and then regains its same meaning later. That's like the magic bullet theory, in my opinion. Um, and that's what Wayne House's point is. Now, this one is neat because it's personal. He writes about me in here. And this is Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Um, He wrote uh, something called The Footsteps of the Messiah. 
it's not a light read. It's about a thousand pages. And he keeps revising it. And every time he revises it, it seems to get bigger and bigger. And so this is the latest revision. And he came up to me and told me he was going to put this in his latest revision because my little booklet changed his mind on this issue. And this is a pretty big domino to fall. I mean, you're not with Arnold Fruchtenbaum. You're not dealing with a lightweight. And in fact, I was standing next to him in an airport in, uh, where were we? Springfield, thank you. And he starts to, he comes up to about right here on me. He's very, he's very short. And when he talks, he doesn't, he has, um, he's from, he's a Russian Jew, so his accent makes it kind of hard to, to say. So I don't know what it was. We had to pick him up and take him to a conference that we were all participating in. And he's standing next to me in this crowded, loud airport, and he said, you, you changed my mind on 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. And I said, wait, wait, what, what did you just say? So I went like this, literally. I bent down <laughs> at a right angle just to make sure I got this right. And I can say that exact same thing again. So he said, you changed my mind on 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. And obviously I heard correctly because he's revised his footsteps of the Messiah. So here's what he says, and this is kind of a journey that he was on with 2 Thess 2, 3, and how his mind got changed. He says the 2020 revision, he says this right at the beginning, primarily focuses on correcting some formatting and spelling inconsistencies of the 2003 edition, as well as editing of the text to improve its readability. Furthermore, it includes a new topical index as well as my altered view of 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, which I developed after additional research of new scholarly works such as Dr. Andy Wood's The Falling Away, Spiritual or Physical Departure, published 2018 by Dispensational Publishing House, which we're making available to you. This is a little booklet he picked up at the pre-trib study group. He read it, and it it switched his view. He writes this, In previous editions of this work, I presented a different viewpoint, that the term apostasia was referring to the apostasy of the church. The fact that in the last days the church will depart from the faith is clearly taught in other passages such as 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. And I've communicated that. I believe in the predictions of the last days apostasy of the church, just not this verse from 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, early in Paul's ministry. But is that also true of 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3? That was my assumption for many years, but at one point I began uh, questioning the conclusion. One reason I held this position was based on viewing 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Now watch this very carefully because this is, this is really important in terms of how you study the Bible. Uh, one reason I held this position was based on 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 verse 3 from the perspective of systematic theology. See that? 
where conclusions are drawn from all sources. In other words, if you're going to have a view of the last day's apostasy of the church, what you, you do is you have that perspective and you have, you have several go-to passages that you use. He uses 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. I would use that one too. I would use others also. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, about the itching years and the last days and all those, those kind of prophecies. And once you have a perspective from systematic theology, which is, is taking all the biblical data to prove a certain point, a doctrinal point, the temptation is to grab other verses that may not necessarily be on point. But boy, they sure sound good when you quote other verses, right? And throw those into the mix. And so what he was doing is what I was doing with the same passage for years. Yeah, I believe in the last day's apostasy of the church. Here's passage A, here's passage B, here's passage C. Oh yeah, 2 Timothy, uh, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 fits great there too. Let's throw it in. So what he what he's saying is he was not studying this passage alone in its own context. So he writes, my conclusion on 2 Thessalonians 2 passages were drawn from the 1 Timothy passage. 1 Timothy's talking about last day's apostasy of the church. Well, that must be what Paul's talking about here in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. That is not an exegetical study of the Bible. That is a systematic theological understanding of the Bible. To understand what things mean, you have to just put aside your theology, whatever it is, and start to study things contextually. And this, unfortunately, is not what's happening in modern Bible interpretation. He goes on and he says the second reason was based on the fact that I already knew that the Greek term apostasia can refer to a physical departure as well as more moral, ethical, or a spiritual departure. In the vast majority of appearances, the term is used in the latter sense. Hence, the vast majority of theologians, including me, interpret 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 according to the meaning of the term, according to this meaning of the term, spiritual departure. In other words... Rather than continuing to interpret the verse primarily from the viewpoint of systematic theology, I decided to research it from the perspective of biblical theology, which focuses more on a specific Bible writer and or book. Now we're talking. Because once you give up... uh, your systematic theological understanding of a word, once you stop uh, kind of using systematic theology as a set of glasses to interpret key biblical texts, you're now on a process where you can get to the truth of something. And very, very sadly, most people are unwilling to go from step A to step B. So, gee, why do you teach verse by verse at this church? Why do your sermons go on for an hour or over an hour? 
Okay, you're starting to see why we do it this way. It's it's a method that we are following here, and it's the absolute best method to get to the truth of something. If you're just going to dance around at the 10,000-foot level and look at things in categories constantly, you'll probably get a lot of things right, but you're not going to get everything right. It takes harder work to get into the minutiae and start to plow your way through biblical texts verse by verse is what he's getting at. And once he did that with 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, his his, his, uh, perspective changed. See, what he is admitting to here is he took off one set of eyeglasses and put on another set of eyeglasses. Let's not do the 10,000-foot systematic theology approach. Let's take off those glasses and let's put on the Paul glasses. What did Paul mean to this specific audience? It's a different form of analysis. He goes on and he says, in this case, the focus was on both the epistle to the the Thessalonians before interpreting one verse in one of the epistles through a verse from a different book by the same author, but addressed to a different audience and written in a different context. It really doesn't matter what Paul said in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy because that's a different audience. That's a different situation in writing. That's a different time period in Paul's ministry. He goes on and he says, Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians to the same church, responding to the, to the questions that they had written to him. See, now we're getting it. Now you're going to start hearing things from him that sound an awful like, like the Bible studies we've been doing in the two Thessalonian letters. In the first epistle, Paul dealt with the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord. He clearly taught that the day of the Lord will not overtake the believer, but only the unbeliever, since since believers are not appointed to wrath, and the antecedent to wrath is the day of the Lord. The verses show a pre-tribulational rapture, 1 Thessalonians. Because the two, two epistles... False teachers had come into the church announcing that the day of the Lord had begun. The news troubled the Thessalonians greatly since it was the opposite of what Paul had taught them both in person and in writing in the first epistle. So Paul uh, wrote them the second epistle to let them know that it was not possible for them to be in the day of the Lord since two things had to precede, the first of which was the apostasia or the departure. This fact raised a question in my mind, Fruchtenbaum is saying. Is it possible that Paul mentioned the apostasia in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, in order to reaffirm what he had written in the first epistle. Namely, that believers would not enter the day of the Lord. Hey, let's just dump a second. Let's just forget systematic theology for a minute. 
Let's forget all of the predictions about the last day's apostasy of the church. And let's try to figure out what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Could he be reaffirming the identical point that he made in the first letter now that false teachers and false correspondences had come into the Thessalonian congregation seeking to move that group away from Paul's original theology? Could Paul in the second letter be reaffirming what he said in the first letter? That's that's what Fruchtenbaum is saying here. In other words, I quit studying this verse from the 10,000-foot level, and I started getting into the specific audience and questions that you analyze uh, whenever you're doing verse-by-verse Bible study. He goes on, what finally helped to convince me is Dr. Andy Wood's booklet, The Falling Away, Spiritual Departure or Physical Departure, published by Dispensational Publishing House in 2018. Among the, the points Woods makes are the following. Number one, these should sound familiar to you because I've given these to you. Uh, every single week for the last six weeks, right? There have always been doctrinal departures in the first century. Even gives the page number. Look at that. Pages six through eight. Number two, there is a definite article before the noun apostasia, just as there is a definite article before man of sin in the same verse. Woods states by providing these two definite articles, essentially, Paul is indicating that the apostasy will be something that has specific time-bound qualities, just like the man of sin's uh, coming has such qualities. In other words, just like the advent of the man of sin will be specific and instantaneous, even in future history, the coming apostasia or departure will be similarly specific and time-bound. It will also take place instantaneously, pages 15 and 16. The Greek noun apostasia can refer to a physical departure and examples such as Matthew 5.31, Matthew 19, 7, Mark 10, 4, pages 17 to 20. Now, what he's talking about there is in the little booklet, I show you that there is not the identical word, but a highly related word. In fact, there's almost, uh, when you look at those two words side by side, the only difference between them is like one letter, one Greek letter in the middle of those words. Where that second word refers to a divorce when Jesus is talking about divorce and he's giving the conditions for divorce and remarriage. Well, I'm sorry, when two people get divorced, unless they really like each other, they usually separate. That's a highly related word, almost an identical word that's used to describe apostasia in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, which will be a divorce in the sense we're divorced from this world at that point of the rapture. And just like you leave your ex behind, we're going to leave this whole world behind us. Number four, the verbal form of apostasia is ephistomy. Wood states only three times does the verb ephistomy mean a spiritual departure. However, the majority of times... Full 75% of instances, 
Actually, it's really 80%, but who's counting, right? The majority of times, or a full 75% of instances where ephistomy is used in the Greek New Testament, it does not refer to spiritual departure, but rather to physical departure. Thus, while this verb is used 15 times, only three times does it mean a spiritual departure. The remaining 12 times, it clearly means a physical departure, page 21. So of my 10 points, he's citing four that persuaded him. He says Woods made additional observations in his booklet, but these four were the, the four main points that finally convinced me that Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3, is speaking of a physical departure, which will be the rapture of the church, Hence, this verse proves additional evidence for a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, I do have to say that (laughs) this uh, communication that I had from him in that airport came at the right time because I was um, just being dumped on, it seemed like, by everybody in the social media world, you know, for teaching heresy and misleading people and... Uh, heretic, strained exegesis, departing from the dispensational tradition, and then having Arnold, you know, it's a, it was like the providence of God say that to me in the airport. It was like, wow, thank you, Lord. I needed something to show me I was on the right path. Um, so that's Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Here is C. Gordon Olson. And he's passed away. He came out with the Resurrection New Testament. And this is what he says on Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3. And this is important because a lot of people will say, no English translation translates apostasia as the departure. Well, Gordon Olson does. And this is in his notes on that verse. He says, let... No one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the departure comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. The Greek apostasy, this is Olson's notes now, which you can find in his translation. The Greek apostasy means a departure, as does its verb, aphistomy. It can refer to a physical departure, a spiritual departure, or a rebellion. The rapture of Christians would be a physical departure which is supported by his announcement of the subject in chapter 2, verse 1. You want to look at chapter 2, verse 1 again? Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to Him. Doesn't that sound like the rapture? If the two Thessalonian books are written back to back, then Paul had just mentioned the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And if the word apostasia can go both directions, departure from the word or departure from the world, and he's acknowledging it can go both directions, you pick the, the one that fits the context. So Olson is saying the physical departure view fits this context. Now notice this last sentence because this is very interesting. Otherwise, Paul never returned to his declared topic in a lapse of thought, which raises questions. 
See, what Olson is saying is, look, if you make this spiritual departure, and Paul, halfway through the verse, sort of interrupts his, his train of thought, which he seems to do here, he never returns to his subject in the rest of the chapter. Now, other things in verse 3, the coming of the man of sin and these kinds of things, Paul does return to his subject later on in the chapter. But if you make this a spiritual departure understanding, it's like you have Paul bringing up something, and then he, he kind of has a senior moment or something where he never gets back to his original topic. And Olson's saying that is sort of a problem with the spiritual departure understanding. Now, with the physical departure understanding, you have Paul making a point and getting back to his topic. Physical departure, chapter 2, verse 3, he gets back to his main subject. Physical departure, verses 6 and 7, no problem. But if he's making a departure from the world kind of statement, then it's a bit odd for Paul to bring up a subject in a book and never get back to his topic. And by the way, it's a bit odd for Paul to even bring that up in the Thessalonian letters since Paul never talks about that in the Thessalonian letters. So that's what Olson uh, is saying here. Henry Morris. You know, Henry Morris... um, You have to understand that his book, The Genesis Flood, 1960, completely reversed the evangelical strategy that he co-authored with John Whitcomb on how to deal with age-of-the-earth, quote, science issues. Because when Darwin came out with his Origin of Species, 1859, and everybody started to say that the earth is millions, and now, of course, they're saying billions of years old, therefore the biblical record can't be literal, Christianity had no um, viable strategy for dealing with that issue. What Christianity went back into beginning in 1890 with a man named W.H. Green, a professor then of Hebrew, I believe, at Princeton. They went into what what I would call the backwards Christian soldier belief. You can't challenge science. So we got to fix the Bible. we got to come up with something that somehow makes the Bible fit with modern-day science, or we're going to end up being looked at as, you know, members of the Flat Earth Society. I can't even use that joke today anymore because there actually is a Flat Earth Society. It's just unbelievable. We're going to be we're going to, we're going to looked at as crazies. I mean, if science has proven this and the Bible is saying that, we got to rewrite the Bible. And that's what evangelical Christianity did from 1890 until 1959. Backwards Christian soldier. This is where the day-age theory comes from. Each day is a billion years. Uh, it was W.H. Green who started to try to stretch out the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 to accommodate missing generations. This is where the gap, so-called gap theory, ultimately comes from. This 
age of time in between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis. When you study the history of interpretation, you'll find all of these views that sometimes people espouse today come out of the backward Christian soldier mindset. Henry Morris and John Whitcomb, co-authoring the Genesis flood, said no. And they went out and they started to challenge science as really not being science. Maybe y'all's carbon dating isn't accurate, they said. Maybe we can explain the um, geology column in terms of a giant flood rather than billions of years. I mean, we took our, our youth group to the Grand Canyon to get this whole Henry Morris-type perspective uh, from uh, Russ Miller, who's going to be here at our, our prophecy conference in February. So Henry Morris is like a big deal. Anything you can get and buy for, and read from Henry Morris is worth it. All of these ministries today that are going back to old earth creationism or they're going back to theistic evolution or they're promoting the day age theory, uh, Hugh Ross, reasons to believe is talking about some pre-Adamic race that existed before Adam. And he's trying to say that the uh, flood never covered the whole world. And they sound so erudite as they're talking. You have to understand something historically. Those guys are going back to the old playbook. That's the old playbook. I mean, we, we used to use that when we were on the JV team to beat the opponent. And it wasn't that good of a playbook. We got a new playbook. We don't need the day-age theory anymore. We don't need the gap theory anymore. We don't need theistic evolution anymore because Whitcomb, the Hebrew scholar, and Morris, the credentialed scientist, went out and gave us a different strategy and started to expose things being taught in the name of science that weren't science. And in fact, the Bible literally understood has been right all along. That's Henry Morris. And he... The thing to understand about Henry Morris is he was a student of Genesis 1 through 11, but he was also a student of prophecy. Ken Ham of the Ark Exhibit, Answers in Genesis, they do wonderful work, but they will not take a position on prophecy. They will not take a position. I think they do that for marketing reasons. I think they think if they take a position on prophecy, then people aren't going to come to see the Noah's Ark there in Kentucky, which is a, we took our youth group to see that. That's a great thing to see. I'm trying to tell you that Henry Morris wasn't that way. Henry Morris, the father of the Young Earth Creationist Movement, wrote a commentary on Genesis called the Genesis Record. He wrote a similar commentary on the book of Revelation called the Revelation Record. And Henry Morris believed that you should take prophecy and protology. Genesis 1 through 11 and the end times using the same literal interpretation. So that's why I find Henry Morris very interesting to read 
because he's the one that reversed the evangelical strategy concerning age of the earth type issues. And he is, is, was very different than young earth guys today, prominent young earth guys today, where he was a literalist at the beginning of the Bible and he was a literalist at the end of the Bible. What a thought, right? By the way, our conference in February, that's the whole point of it. You don't, you don't just take Genesis 1 through 11 literally, you take the end times literally. And so we're going to be trying to, and most people, when they get into these subjects, they get so specialized that they're not looking at the big picture. Uh, we're trying to do a conference taking both literally. So Henry Morris in his Defender's Study Bible, which I would encourage you to get, it's got wonderful notes in it. He makes a comment on 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. Look at this. The falling away, the Greek apostasia, has commonly been translated as the apostasy. The definite article in the Greek indicates that Paul had already told them about it and then assumed to apply the final great religious apostasy at the end of the age. So he's giving what the majority, how the majority handles that verse as some kind of departure from the word. And I'm trying to find the place I left off. Well, anyway. Oh, there it is. The context, however... In other words, here's the majority view. However, here's what I think the true view is of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. However, as well as the etymology of the word itself, makes this interpretation, the spiritual departure interpretation, unlikely. In the precise form, it is used nowhere else in the New Testament, so its meaning must be defined by its context here. Boy, he sounds an awful lot like me, doesn't he? And that's why I'm sharing these things with you, just to show you that I'm not just blowing smoke up here. I'm walking down a well-traveled road. It is derived from two Greek words, apo, meaning away from, stasis, meaning standing. It could properly be rendered standing away from instead of falling away. In Paul's previous letter, he made no reference to a coming departure from the faith. But he had discussed at length a coming departure from the earth by all believers when Christ returns to meet them in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This standing away from in context seems to refer to all the raptured believers standing away from the earth. As they stand before their Lord... Uh, Lord returning when they meet him in the heavens. Here Paul is reminding them that the sudden destruction that would come upon unbelievers when the day of the Lord begins could not happen until the rapture, the standing away from the earth before Christ had taken place. So there's another domino to fall. He goes on and he says, the entire context before and after fits the description of the text better than the idea of of the apostasy from the faith. In other words, he's saying what Arnold Fruchtenbaum is saying. Stop analyzing this from the 10,000-foot level of systematic theology. 
Stop using this verse as a proof text to support your doctrinal point that the church is going to defect from truth in the last days. There's a lot of verses on that. Use those. Don't use this one. Because the context doesn't support it. Watch this. Over the last 1,950 years since Paul wrote these lines, there have been numerous great apostasies from the faith. And none of these introduced the day of the Lord. Although persecuted believers in each case might have easily interpreted them to be so. So how could this be some kind of definitive sign of the end, this doctrinal departure, when we've had doctrinal departures for the last 1,950 years? One more here. J. Carl Laney just found this recently. Answers to tough questions. I think he was a longtime professor of, of New Testament and Greek, I believe at Multnomah in Portland, Oregon. He says, the Greek apostasia is derived from a verb meaning depart from, aphistomy. The most basic root meaning of apostasy is departure. While the word can be used metaphorically of a departure from doctrine, Acts 21.21, yeah, but Andy, what about Acts 21, 21? Well, that's what the word means in Acts 21, 21. I mean, the last time I checked, we're not studying Acts 21, 21. We're studying 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. The most basic root meaning of apostasy is departure. While the word can be used metaphorically of departure from doctrine, the context of the passage must ultimately determine its meaning. It is significant that in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is writing about the coming of our Lord Jesus and particularly about the aspect of the event which relates to our gathering to him. I just want to make sure that wasn't the last trump right there. A comparison of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17 suggests that this is a clear reference to the rapture. Two events then must precede the day of the Lord, the rapture of the church and the revelation of the Antichrist. Believers who have not experienced these events can be assumed that they are not suffering the tribulation judgments. Now, I know you want to hear what J. Vernon McGee says. But we're out of time, so we'll <laughs> we'll pick it we'll pick that up next week. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for all of these people that you have uh, been faithful students, and it's encouraging to see so many faithful people willing to just uh, teach your word in season and out of season. May we be found among their number. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Happy intermission.